Are you getting work done that matters or are you logging hours getting pulled in all kinds of different directions? If what you want is to create more opportunities to do really deep and meaningful work, stick around because Cal Newport is here to show us how. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 233. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions that will help you to develop your leadership skills. And I'm so glad that you have joined me today because I have a guest today that's someone that I've admired in their professional work and someone who I followed very closely and has definitely influenced my thinking about how I approach my work. And I know that his perspective will really be helpful to all of us and how we can really focus and to be able to get the results in our work and our careers that many of us are shooting for, but also find challenging in the environment that we find ourselves in today. And my guest today is Cal Newport. Cal is an assistant professor of computer science at Georgetown University and the author most recently of the new book, Deep Work, a book which argues that focus is the new IQ in the modern workplace. He's also previously the author of a book many of you may have heard of, So Good That They Can't Ignore You, a book which debunks the long-held belief that follow your passion is good advice. And Cal has published close to 50 peer-reviewed papers as an academic, which is huge for those of you who know anything about uh, the work professors do. He's earned over 2,500 citations, written five books, selling over 200,000 copies, has a very popular blog, which is how I know him from. And he does all of that without working at nights, and he rarely works on weekends. And the secret is his fantastic commitment to deep work. And that's what he's here to talk with us today about. Cal, thanks so much for making the time to be here. Well, hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. So I guess this begs the question, first of all, of of what is deep work? And when you think about the book and what you consider deep work, and you're explaining it to someone for the first time who's not familiar with that line of thinking. How do you frame it? Well, deep work is when you focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So you give something your, your full unbroken concentration for a long amount of time. But when I frame this topic, especially when talking to people within the knowledge work sector, I emphasize that it's useful to think about deep work as a tool. Uh, it's one of many tools you have available to you. But this particular tool, I argue, is incredibly valuable, especially in knowledge work and especially in our current economy. It can produce massive amounts of results. It's very productive. It also produces very high quality results. And it's also sort of more meaningful and satisfying to work on. So I like to think of deep work not just as an activity, but as a tool. And what's interesting about it to me is that we have this very powerful tool and we're getting to a point right now in our current work culture where almost no one uses it. That if we looked over the shoulder of almost any knowledge worker today, they spend the bulk of their time communicating about work. And when they do actually work, they don't use deep work as the tool. Instead, they tend to do so with lots of quick distractions, check email, look back, glance at the phone, back at the work. So we have this big opportunity. There's this great, powerful tool that if you train yourself to use it, can have these huge results. 
and yet almost no one's using it, which to me smells like a big opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And your work has really changed my thinking in how I approach my work. In fact, one of our listeners first mentioned your name to me in an email, and I started reading your blog. And there's there's not many blogs. In fact, there's very few that I read every article, but yours is one of them. And as I started reading just how you frame work and thinking about it, it's really changed my perspective in a lot of ways. And yet I think that a lot of people don't necessarily even see that. They don't see how much time is spent on talking about work, like you said. And I'm wondering if if you could frame that for us as, how does that show up? Like, What's an example of where you, you're seeing that in the organizations of the people you know and, and how that's showing up in practical ways? Yeah, so there's really two issues out there. So one is we spend an increasing fraction of our time you know, as we just said, talking about work. So communicating about work and email and a meeting, sort of talking about the type of things that we need to do and how we're going to do them. But these activities don't actually create lots of new value. They don't use your skill and apply your skill to create new things of value to the world, which is ultimately what most organizations need to do. Then the other issue we have is that when people uh, are actually working on producing things of value, so it could be writing a business strategy, a memo, writing computer code, or in my case, solving a mathematics proof, more and more people do this not deploying deep work, really intense, unbroken concentration, but instead they do so in a, a state of sort of mild distraction and fractured attention, which produces uh, outcomes that are of muted quality at a much slower rate. So it's almost like we have out here a knowledge work sector where people are working with a massive impairment. It's like a sports team where you, you tie a weight belt to all your athletes. We, we're not reaching our full potential when we're not using depth, really long, unbroken concentration as one of the primary sort of activities of our workday. I totally can see that when I show up at our client sites and look at the kinds of environments that people are in and just their daily schedules. I'm wondering, are you finding that there are organizations or even pockets of organizations or particular leaders who have figured out ways from not just as an individual, but from a, a little bit of an organizational culture standpoint to start to think differently around that and do some of what you're talking about? Well, I think this is one of the big opportunities of the current decade. I think organizations that actually understand that depth uh, is a tool like a computer system you might buy or some sort of training that has these outsized returns, there's a huge opportunity to get a, a big competitive advantage here where you actually make depth something that you manage, something that you discuss, something that you prioritize and insist on your employees getting better at and using would be a huge competitive advantage. And to be honest, I don't have any great examples of mid to large size organizations who are doing this where we first see depth starting to percolate up is in situations where we have solo entrepreneurs or more freelance style work, where you can start to find examples of people, who I include myself in this category, who by prioritizing depth and training our ability to do deep work are finding that we're getting outsized results in less time. I think these same results can translate to larger organization. It's just a matter of these organizations taking the, taking the chance here. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. That was one of the things I was thinking about going into our conversation is uh, people like you and me who have a little bit more, uh, I guess, flexibility is the word on how we frame our work and our schedule and, and environment. This is easier for and folks who are in some of the larger or even medium sized organizations this is a little more challenging for. But I'm, I'm wondering maybe if we can start with some of the some of the low hanging fruit. And you know, one of the things I was interested that you 
put on your blog is that this this book that you've released, Deep Work, is the book Facebook doesn't want you to read. And I think it's probably not possible to have this conversation without talking about email and social media. And you've really you've taken a what I think is kind of a, a unique and interesting approach to how you handle this just in your own professional life. And I was wondering if you could say something about that. Yeah, for example, never had a social media account. And I think that's something that in an age of deep work should be more common. Um, and the reason I don't have a social media account, I've never had a Facebook account, I've never had a Twitter account, is because I take my ability to concentrate very seriously. And this is a point I make you know, again and again in the book, is that uh, the ability to perform deep work is something that you have to train and develop. It's a skill, not just a habit. You actually have to train your ability to concentrate. And for me, to remove from my life sources of always present, low-key distraction pulling at my attention is sort of a logical and key part of that training. So, you know, as you embrace deep work, you have to start being more serious about, hey, what do I actually allow into my attention landscape and what behaviors do I think is appropriate? So I've never had a social media account and Facebook might not want me to admit this, but it turns out nothing bad happens. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because I dropped my Facebook account about a month and a half ago before I had seen your article on and the book. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about this of how what distracts my time when I, especially when I'm at a computer and trying to get my work done. And what's really interesting to me is even after I deactivated the account for about a month, how many times a day I would just without thinking about it, open a web browser and type in the letters F-A-C-E in the URL and catch myself doing it because of course the account wasn't there anymore. I realized like, wow, how much I must have been doing that on a daily basis, even hourly basis. And I just wonder like that time and energy and all those things that, that go into that of how much that vanished when I was trying to normally get work done. Yeah. You know, it, it always surprises me how, you know, these companies, they're media companies in California. That's really what these social media companies are. They sell advertisements that they, they've somehow convinced our culture that, that of course, they're necessary. And so the, the conversation is always, oh, man, I use Facebook too much. I should probably cut back. But I mean, obviously, I got to still use it. And I'm surprised that we don't hear more often just the common sense argument. Well, I don't know. If you're not 21 years old and need it to, to know where your friends are going to a party, you probably don't actually need it. And I think a, a big problem with a lot of these attention-stealing technologies is that we've adopted in the past decade or so what I call the any-benefit mindset for tool adoption. And this is the mindset that, hey, if you can identify any possible benefit for using something or any possible thing you might miss out on, then that's justification to start using that tool or service. That's the mindset that leads people to, to sign up and use all of these different social media tools. If you ask them why, you know, they'll have two or three things to give you, but often they're very sort of minor, not very large benefits. Like, well, there's this guy I know, my high school friends I can keep up with. And I really advocate for what I call the craftsman approach to tool selection, which is to acknowledge that, of course, every tool that could potentially grab some of your time and attention has some benefit. It wouldn't be out there for sale if it didn't have some benefit. But the only ones that you should really let into your life are the small number that you think are going to have a substantial positive impact on the things that are most important to you. And I think for a lot of knowledge workers, especially those who are highly skilled, a lot of these social media ads companies like Facebook or Twitter probably don't actually match that criteria. Well, one of the other things that I'm, I was really interested that you brought into this conversation on your blog is the value of boredom. 
And it was interesting you mentioned also Teddy Roosevelt and uh, and how he approached work. And he's one of my favorite characters from American history. Tell me more about Roosevelt and how does that play into boredom and why should we be conscious of that? I also love Teddy Roosevelt. He's He's a good example for almost any topic, it seems. <laughs> Whatever topic that comes up, there's <laughs> yes. probably something he did that makes him a great example. So you just read this one biography and you're set for, for many different things. Yeah, I, I, one of the many things I admire about Teddy Roosevelt is that he was famous for the intensity with which he could concentrate. And we have stories going back to his days at Harvard and before and much after about how he could turn his focus of attention on a cognitively demanding task, be it his coursework in Harvard or his work on his first book, which was a book on the naval battles of the War of 1812 that was highly acclaimed, which he wrote while in law school and while in politics. Uh, He could turn his attention, and he had such intensity that he could accomplish very high-quality things in a small amount of time, which, of course, is uh, deep work. He was a master at deep work, and it explains a lot of his productivity. Now, how this connects to boredom is we can step back and say, all right, so what does it mean to embrace deep work? And I think something that's worth emphasizing is that I'm not making the sort of lukewarm claim here that, yeah, we should all be a little bit less distracted and maybe pay a little bit more attention to our work. Instead, I'm making the stronger claim that more people should make deep work sort of at the core of their working life. It's a, a relatively radical commitment for an organization or an individual to make. And there's two elements to that commitment. One, you actually have to train your mind we call it cognitive calisthenics. You have to train your mind, your ability to concentrate like Teddy Roosevelt. If you don't practice, you won't be good at it. And then two, you have to you know, restructure your organization or restructure your personal productivity to make sure that uh, you have regular time for depth, that that time is protected, that you're doing everything you can to get the most out of those deep work sessions. So if we look at that first part, the cognitive calisthenics, one of the most important components of training your mind to be able to work like Teddy Roosevelt, to produce huge value in a small amount of time, is that you have to wean it off of its dependence on novel stimuli every time you feel a little bored. So even if outside of the workplace, we're only talking about outside of the workplace, you have a habit of every time you're a little bored, you look at your phone, take a quick glance at Facebook, you're essentially weakening your ability to concentrate and focus intensely. So that if you then put yourself into a situation where you really want to try to do Teddy Roosevelt-style Roosevelt uh, focus, you're not going to be able to do it. So one of the things you have to do here is wean your mind from that dependence. And the best way to do that is you just need many more opportunities in your life where you're just simply bored, where you don't have novel stimuli, you're in line, you're waiting at a restaurant, and instead of pulling out your phone, you just say, I'm going to be a little bored, I'm just going to be here, I'm going to be okay with it. Uh, that's actually like doing weight training for for your brain's executive center. It, it helps you get better and better at not needing these stimuli, which means you'll be sharper and sharper when you try to focus during a deep work session. I, I saw a hilarious uh, comment somewhere online earlier today. Uh, it was something to the framework of, I walked into Starbucks and I saw someone just sitting there drinking a cup of coffee like a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, that is awesome. Right. And they're probably going to be, you know, a superstar in their field. <laughs> right. Roosevelt-style focus prodigy. But it's, it, it is so, but as funny as that is, it's also kind of sad when you think about it. It is really odd to walk into somewhere like a Starbucks and see someone not on a device. I mean, the fact that that's strange 
it should sound alarm bells. And it would be okay if the dominant industry in this country, let's say, was still maybe working in manufacturing, where it didn't really matter if you're able to concentrate really intensely to work your position on an assembly line. But the dominant industry in our country is in an information economy is knowledge work. It, it's, it's literally, you know, putting your mind and focusing on information and being able to transform it into more valuable information. So it's we're taking the exact skill that we apply uh, to do our work and we are significantly weakening it. But I don't want to be, uh, I don't want it to be sort of curmudgeonly, like I'm shaking my hand at distraction and, and distractions are bad. There's nothing that's intrinsically wrong about, say, Facebook or, or using your smartphone. Uh, to me, the story here is the what's right about the opposite. Mm. So a, a life or an organization built around deep work is not appropriate for everyone. But for the people who embrace this skill and make it at the center of their life or organizations that really integrate it, I just think it's this massive opportunity. It's like a performance-enhancing drug that you know, you're know you allowed to take and no one else is doing. So that's what gets me excited is the sort of positive opportunities about really downplaying the shallow and the distraction and really focusing on the depth and seeing you know how much more results come from that. One of the other things you've, you've mentioned on your blog uh, many times is just how you how you structure things and are productive and even how you think through your calendar and you and a few others have really changed my thinking on this of of really starting with creating what that ideal week should look like you know with no other factors involved what where should you be using your time and then taking your planning and putting it into that schedule versus running your day off a task list or you know running it out of your email box. I assume you still use that methodology. Can you, can you tell us more for those who maybe don't think about their, their time and their planning that way of how you approach that and why that's helpful and deep work? Every week I do a weekly plan. And this is a, a complicated process that can take a couple hours. But I'm essentially laying out day by day what I want to work on. And so I'm, I'm looking at all the puzzle pieces. Okay, I, you know, what do I have on each day? What days are crowded? What's not? What meetings and appointments do I have? What deadlines are on my various horizons? What's a priority for me right now? And then I, I, I shuffle around that these work between the different days. I'm going to work on this grant on Monday morning. Then I have this meeting. Then I'm going to prep my lecture. I'm moving around the, the work over a whole week's uh, horizon. Small tasks, little things that need to be done those are also being moved around, but they get pushed into big batches. So, okay, here I have a, two hours put aside where I'm going to take care of all these small things. And then maybe two days from there, I have some time where I'm going to take care of the, the emails that have built up in my inbox. So I'm working proactively to figure out how I want to use my time throughout the week as opposed to working reactively and saying, what's due tomorrow, what's in my inbox so because of that, I spend a lot less time actually, you know, say, sending in and receiving emails or it's easier for me to, to say no to meetings because I have a better sense of, no, no, that day is full. I can see what I need to do when. So it's very useful in that respect. But the, I think the key point about it is once you start to prioritize deep work, this type of planning becomes very natural. Because once you prioritize deep work, the type of effort that you are going to naturally prioritize is really giving important value producing things a lot of attention that's what work will then mean to you and the more shallow stuff the communication about work the email the social media that'll get more naturally sort of pushed to the periphery batched together and separated by more time 
Um, so this this notion that you're going to plan your time and, and make sure that you have time in advance for the important things comes naturally once you shift your mindset to say it's really the deep stuff, the stuff I can give hard attention and, and really focus on. That's what work is. This other stuff is just support for work. And if I can minimize it and, and make it more efficient, then that's going to be all the better. Well, and that leads right to one of the other pieces of advice that's central in the book, which is draining the shallows. And I think that this is this is something that is a struggle for a lot of us, and especially those who do work in a large organization. Of how do you how do you minimize? I don't think any of us will ever eliminate, but how do we minimize some of those other things that take us away from the focus? deep knowledge work that many of us are called to do. Cal, I'm curious, when you've worked with people who you found who have, have been able to had some good results with that, what have you found that they've done? Efforts that aren't deep work, a lot of them are important, as you say. We can't, we can't live in a cave and just think deeply. So we, we have to think, how do we integrate those into our work life? And really, it's two things. One is you try to eliminate what you can, the stuff that's not really important. And then two, you try to be more efficient with the non-deep efforts that are sort of necessary for your job. And it's here that you can see things that, some, some creativity that, that's actually quite interesting. So, so some things that I've seen that maybe is not so provocative, but I think is very effective, is that you begin to see people in advance figure out when they're free for meetings, phone calls, and appointments within the week. So when they're planning, they figure that out in advance. And then if someone wants to actually try to take some of their time and attention, they say, that's great. Here's when I'm available. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they're able to much better protect the longer stretches to do focused work. And it also keeps a cap on how many of those things are allowed into their week each week. But then we also see much more extremes. So a friend of mine, Brett McKay, who runs the, the, the website, The Art of Manliness, which is sort of like a, a mini media empire that he oh, has yeah, about, yeah. Uh, it's like an online magazine, very popular. It is. One of the things he did, which I found fascinating, was he got rid of the, his email address on the website. And it now says, if you want to contact me or contact a company, here's my address. You can send me a letter. And he said it had a, a massive impact on freeing up his time and attention because he was spending so much time answering all these emails that came in and it has zero impact on the success of his business. We, we assume that we have to be really connected, but when he really dialed back on that, nothing bad really happened, but it freed him up. So we, we sort of see both things, being more careful about how you schedule your shallow work and then two, really pushing back on these sources of shallow work, how important are they and doing elimination of, of these type of obligations when you can. Oh, fascinating. I love that example too, because a lot of the things, I mean, this whole conversation is reminding me that there there are things that a lot of us take as just sacred cows of, yeah, I've got to be instantly responsive to everyone. I've got to, I've got to have a Facebook account, you know, whatever the, whatever the got to is. And that if we really examine how we're using our time, that there's a lot of those things that we can, if not do differently, maybe even approach a little bit with a little different mindset and, a, and adapt that really would make a really big difference for a lot of us in how we approach our work. Yeah, there are a lot of sacred cows. And I think the more that we get past that smokescreen, the better we are. I mean, there's a lot of things that we think are fundamental to what it means to be a worker that are really much more recent than we remember. And even the very basic behavior that obviously your workday needs to be run out of an email inbox and that we all have a computer on our desk and checking email is at the core of our workday. 
even something like that that seems like this is what it means to be knowledge work, we have to remind ourselves is about 10 or 15 years old. There's, there's nothing fundamental about these habits. And one of the points I make in the book is that some of these habits just emerge. Uh, they weren't designed by someone. No one ever sat back and said this would be the best way to work. A lot of these habits just emerge in a sort of ad hoc fashion and start really ripping away at our time and attention and productivity. And all it takes is someone to step back and say, why did we decide this was the right way to work? And what would happen if we didn't do this? Those two questions can free up a huge amount of productivity. Oh, indeed. I think about that a lot with email, Cal, in, in that it would be ridiculous for any of us to think of like 30 years ago, standing outside at our mailbox and like running our day, uh, standing by the mailbox and taking things out and putting it back in and like filing through papers. And yet, that's exactly how many of us handle email because we never really like all of a sudden this technology was there for a lot of us and a lot of organizations and many of us grew up with it. And we never really thought about like, okay, am I using this technology in a way that really is serving me and helping me and even the organization of my colleagues to be more productive? Yeah, there's this story that I find fascinating about IBM in the 1980s, the early 1980s. And it was written by, uh, I heard the story from an engineer at IBM in the early 1980s who was tasked with helping them to deploy their first internal email system because they were it's a tech company they wanted to be the head of the game on this and he said they studied communication in the office like all right like how much are people sending memos back and forth and leaving notes you know how much communication does our work require and then they use that to provision the email server they say okay so we assume that they'll probably use email instead of doing it the old fashioned way so we'll We'll use the amount of communication we see in the office and use that to provision our email server. Well, within a week of deploying this, the, the use was so high that it melted down a $15 million mainframe. Oh, wow. And the takeaway I took from that story was instead of people just doing the communication they need for their work more conveniently, great, I don't have to send you a memo, I can send it on email. The presence of this technology completely changed the way people worked. And within a week, people were now sending way more communication than they ever actually thought was necessary for their job. And I don't think the case is that suddenly their work required a lot more communication to do well. I think just the presence of the tool changed them in a way that no one actually sat down and designed. And I think this type of thing is happening, especially with uh, constant connectivity email, among other types of habits, is that we forget that it wasn't a, a team of management consultants that sat down and said, this is going to maximize your profits. A lot of times, you just put the technology in front of us, and with no one really thinking about it, our behavior just bounces off each other. And a week later, suddenly we're spending all day sending emails or whatever the bad habit is. So uh, to me, that's an arresting observation, because it means if you're running an organization, for example, you actually probably have way more flexibility than you might normally assume to change the way business is done. And a lot of these new ways might actually get you a lot more results. So glad you mentioned that because there's so many people in our audience who are senior leaders and small and medium-sized businesses and in many cases do have that influence either directly or are very influential in the direction of how their organization handles work and communication. So I'm, I'm hoping this is getting people thinking that way. And Cal, I, I imagine as people are listening that there's a subset of our, my audience here who's who's like, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I'm thinking this way already. And this is giving me good reminders on, on the path to keep going down. And then I'm also imagining there's people listening to this thinking like, wow, I never really even thought about some of these things. For the folks who are in that category, what's a starting point 
of if you're just getting this around in your brain for the first time of thinking about how I can work deeply, where would you advise that people begin in order to start um, making a little progress uh, toward this in a small way? And my advice is if you're if you're new to trying to develop a deep work habit, that there's three general types of work or strategies involved in accomplishing this goal. So I recommend that you take one thing from each of these three categories to do right away to start down this path. So the the first category is training your brain to be better at focus. So do one thing on a regular basis that's going to help you be able to focus better. And that could be as simple as putting your phone away after dinner when you get home or using an internet blocker on the weekends. The second category is actually starting to protect and set aside regular time for deep work and take one thing from that category. So for example, you might start scheduling maybe five hours a week on your calendar a week in advance, broken maybe in between two sessions for deep work. So you just start to get in the habit of starting to protect some time for deep work. And then the third category is making some sort of move in your life that signals to yourself that you take the ability to focus seriously. And this is where you might, for example, quit a social media service that is really pulling on your time and attention and making you unhappy, or a similar type change that signals to yourself that you take the ability to focus seriously. So for an individual, if you do one thing from each of those three categories right away, you're going to be well on your way towards actually honing this ability. Cal, I really appreciate your perspective, and uh, particularly since I know you do think so intentionally about your time and how you use it. I really value you taking time to share your wisdom with our audience. For those who may not be familiar with your blog, I was wondering if you could tell folks how to track you down. Then, of course, uh, I want to make sure folks can uh, hear about how to track down the new book, too. Sure. So my blog is at calnewport.com, where you know I write a lot about deep work and, and habits to support it. And the new book is called, appropriately enough, Deep Work. And there I really make the case for for why this is so valuable and then really get into the details of how to put it into practice as an individual or organization. And you can find that bookstores and Amazon or through my website. And, you know, to sort of wrap up all these points into one thing, you know, I think focus is the new IQ and and that deep work is going to be one of the most valuable skills as our economy gets more competitive and more complex. So if you're one of the few individuals or organizations to step back and say, I know deep work is hard, but we're going to do the hard work to get really good at this and to kind of put it at the core of our values, the magnitude of returns that can give you, I think, is almost unbounded. It really is sort of a superpower in some sense for the 21st century economy. Well, I really appreciate all the work you're doing, the perspective you bring, Cal, and also just being such a great example of this in your own professional work. So thanks a ton for that. I really encourage people to check out the blog. And, and Cal, thanks a ton for your time and, and for sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dave. I really enjoyed it. Cal Newport is the author of the new book, Deep Work. Thank you again to Cal for his perspective and his wisdom on thinking about deep work really strategically. And one of the things I hope that you'll come away from this conversation thinking about is not even necessarily some of the details that we spoke about in this conversation, but but also the big picture of just noticing what's going on in your work environment, of thinking about what are the outcomes that you need to produce for your organization and to 
provide the leadership that's important in your work, whether you're in a formal leadership role or informally influencing people or even as an individual contributor, of how deep work fits into that and what's getting in the way. And, you know, we picked on Facebook a little bit in this conversation, but there's a there's about a million different kinds of things like Facebook that fall into this category for many of us. Just so happened that was the one I was starting to notice back a couple of months ago when I started thinking about my work, partially because of Cal's work and thinking about how I can really zero in on deep work and realize that I was spending, you know, I don't know even how much time. I didn't ever time it, but I noticed I'd go to Facebook a couple times a day and Facebook is masterful at having figured out for me at least what I should click on next. And all of a sudden, you know, 20 minutes would go by and I just wondered, well, what if I just got rid of that? And what if I just didn't have that distraction and how would that change my work? And so I wonder... If you approach your work week and your thinking around what's in your environment almost the same way of starting to notice what's happening, of notice where those interruptions are, of notice what is getting you into the shallow zone of maybe not necessarily value-added type work, and how can you take some of the strategies in this conversation and apply it. And I hope that you will. And if you find things that are valuable to you, I hope you'll share them with us. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash 233. That is where you can find the notes and also join the conversation for this episode. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and feedback for the monthly Q&A shows. Those are the first Monday of the month. And the next one is coming up on episode 235. The link to submit a question is coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And as always, if you receive the weekly leadership guide, you will get the notes for this episode and also my weekly leadership update in your email on Wednesday. For So watch for that. If you're not already subscribed to the show, I hope you'll do so and get episodes every Monday. You can find the show on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this. And I mentioned a moment ago the weekly leadership guide. It is delivered to your inbox on Wednesdays and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books, links, resources. I I look for something different every week that will provide you with the ongoing thinking, challenge, strategy, resources, things that will help get you thinking about your leadership, and also a link, of course, to the weekly show notes. And when you join the weekly leadership guide, if you haven't already, you'll get instant access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others with brief summaries from me on the value of each one of those books. It's an 11-page reader's guide and a nine-minute video of those recommendations. I hope you check that out and join at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And as always, an honor and a pleasure to talk with you each week. And I hope that you'll join me again next week for this ongoing conversation of how all of us can become more effective leaders through continuous development and constant improvement in our work. Have a great week, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.